when I moved to the US, I saw that work was just dominating people's lives. That was something that I did not expect, I guess, and have never experienced in this intensity where work would just take over people's lives pretty much and almost put on these lines to what else is going on in the world. There is a lack of like aliveness in that where it just felt the outside world is sort of not really seen fully. And there's this lack of awe and wonder. Derek Thompson coined a term for that. It's workism. When I read that, I was like, oh, yeah, there is a term for that. And that makes a lot of sense. That was the point where I got completely hooked and was starting to research and dive much deeper into it. Welcome to the Work for Humans podcast. This is Dart Lindsley. When Alice Catter moved from Europe to the U.S., she was startled by the overwhelmingly work-centric culture dominating her colleagues' lives. Seeing many Americans trapped in this nine-to-five-plus routine, she knew that there had to be alternatives. Using nature as her design inspiration, Alice started exploring frameworks for creating regenerative work, long-term growth, and more human connectedness in life. Alice is a work, culture, and community designer and consultant on a mission to craft a future where creativity, joy, and well-being are at the heart of workplaces and everyday life. With over a decade of expertise in operations, programs, and strategy, Alice has collaborated with organizations such as Q, which is a holding company for some of the top design firms in the world, Dropbox Design, Red Bull, Noble, and Creative Mornings. She's also the founder of Out of Office Network, which is a pioneering research and design lab and hub that reimagines the way we work in a modern world. In this episode, Alice and I discuss some alternatives to the nine to five, which Alice calls different rhythms of work. We talk about how to make work regenerative instead of extractive, tools for human connectedness in large remote corporations, fostering play in the workplace, and defining joy both inside and outside of work. We even gain insights from mushrooms and trees on how to solve problems, among other topics. If you enjoy this conversation with Alice today, don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And now I bring you Alice Catter. Alice Catter, welcome to Work for Humans. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. You're doing something that I think is super interesting, which is one approach to design is biomimesis. You know, let's look at the foot of a gecko and let's figure out how the foot works so that we can make things that stick to other things effectively. You've been taking that approach for work, but I'm going to coin a term, which is, I think you've been using ecomimesis, which is, let's look at ecologies, let's look at large natural systems, and let's see what are some of the design concepts that we might be able to bring forward into the world of work. Hmm, never thought of it like that, yeah. And it's been an incredibly rich field, and I want to talk through how you got there and some of the things that you found. So first of all, how did you arrive at thinking so organically about work? I think I never really had a traditional path. And so I never really had this form of 
setup where work was just like very defined for myself. And so because I started in the the advertising world, I was working in agencies for some time, but then also very quickly after moving around a little bit, started becoming independent. And so I think I always had to figure out how work worked for myself. And I think there was just like this search for different ways of working that I always experienced. And so I always had this approach to work where I felt like my work was always one part. And then there was this broader theme around it, like this broader portfolio of life around it as well. And so I think that was probably leading me to a way to just explore work beyond the traditional sort of nine to five work until you retire model. And it was only really when I moved to the US, when I really got interested in the specifications around work, because I just was so fascinated by what role work played in the US and how people thought about work and this like emerging theme around work. So yeah, I think that's the origins of how I got more interested in imagining and thinking about work in different ways. What did you find when you came to the United States? What were the norms of work? For me, it was always very much about work is one component of life. And I'm growing up in Austria, but then also living in different places within or traveling a lot within Europe and generally taking a vacation as a European. So I've always been just like exposed to a lot of different countries, cultures and approaches to life and work, I guess. And so when I moved to the US, I saw that work was just dominating people's lives. And I found it really fascinating and somehow also shocking that I felt people are in this tunnel of work. When I thought about my life, there was so many different things. I always loved to do different things as well. When I had work, I also did side projects. I opened a co-working space and I ran like some brunch pop-ups in cities. And so I always had this facet of different things. Whereas in the US, it felt most of people's energy was mainly going into work. And so work was this really dominant thing. That was something that I did not expect, I guess, and have never experienced in this intensity where work would just take over people's lives pretty much and almost put on this lines to what else is going on in the world. And I somehow also felt like there's a lack of like aliveness in that where it just felt the outside world is sort of not really seen fully. And there's this lack of awe and wonder that gets experienced through that, which is something that I experience a lot through these different ways of working and living. Derek Thompson coined a term for that. It's workism. So when I read that article in The Atlantic from him, I was like, oh, yeah, there is a term for that. And that makes a lot of sense. So I think that was the point where I got completely hooked and was starting to research and dive much deeper into it. It's totally true in my experience, being a worker in the United States. And I think we'll talk about a lot of the alternatives that you discuss in your book and in other places. But I think there's a lot of fear I think it's probably a couple of different things. One is that there's fear of poverty because there is very little social safety net in the United States. Fear of losing benefits. Your family is a hostage to benefits. But I also just think that once you're inside, you adopt the norms of the workism culture inside the tunnel that you're describing. And it's very hard to see out. Yeah. 
we are defined by the people around us, right? And so if we are in the systems and if we are in those places where work is the majority of our lives or in a culture, in a society where work is that central part of our lives, then of course, it's really hard to look outside. And it's really hard to imagine something else because it's just our environment. And if, I mean, starting from our parents or our friends, and of course we orient ourselves based on these people and also define our metrics of success based on these people. And so I think that's where it's really hard to break out from this pattern. What are some of the alternatives that you've studied and explored? I've recently published a booklet, Reimagining the Nature of Work, where I've started to explore and came up with this framework of a more regenerative way of working and living. And so I've interviewed lots of different people. And one component of that was that I was really interested in different models of work with my collaborator who I worked on this article, Bree Bree Groff, who I think is also on the podcast. Yes. She and I, we thought about like, what are the different models that we're interested in? And actually we then turned them into rhythms. So we said there's different rhythms of work that we can explore depending on the seasons of our lives and the rhythm of our days. Like what are different ways we can actually look at work? I interviewed seasonal workers, freelancers and independent workers. I interviewed collectives and people who took sabbaticals and part-time employees. So really had a look at different ways of working from just like a model perspective. And then also looked at metrics of success and how it really starts with redefining what success actually means to us and how we can shift to a way of defining success and open our aperture for different ways of identifying what success really means. So maybe there's not just like work and the traditional sort of metrics, but maybe there's how much time we want to spend with our family or our loved ones. Maybe it's how much time or how many items of new pottery we want to build in a week. Maybe it's how many hours we want to spend on a surfboard or things that are just outside these predefined metrics. So those were two components. And then the other two components were actually looking at rituals and practices within the workspace and how we can redefine them to be more nourishing, inspiring and connecting for ourselves and for the people around us. And then community and support networks, what role they play in a way of working that feels more inspiring, connecting and revitalizing. Let's dig a little bit into the rhythms and then we'll look at some of the rituals. For each rhythm, you have two sections. What's catchy about this rhythm? What's good about it? And what's bumpy about it? You've got the standard rhythm, you've got seasonal, sabbaticals, part-time, collectives. The standard rhythm, I assume, is nine to five, 50 weeks out of the year for 30 years until retirement. And it has some good things about it. What's catchy about that rhythm? The catchy thing about it is that there's definitely a system that you're part of. As you mentioned before as well, you have that security pillar, you have benefits, you have a group of people that you're regularly in touch with. You have usually, hopefully, learning and development programs and at least some sort of path and direction. And yeah, you have someone who also provides you with work every month. So you don't really need to look for anything like that. And it's just basically served to you. Yeah. Also, there's something to be said for working with the same people couldn't be good or bad, I suppose, but working with the same people, developing deep friendships over decades, 
which is a valuable thing, it's different than what you might get in part-time work, for instance. So let's pick a different one, collectives. Oh, and I should mention something that you do in the book, which is that you have a, a line that shows the shape of the rhythm. And so the really standard rhythm looks like a heartbeat. It's just week on, week off, you know, five days, weekend, five days, weekend, and it goes until it stops. But these other ones have all these different and more and more abstract looking patterns. And so what is the collective structure? Well, collectives are really interesting. Generally, collectives are the way of collectives that we were looking at were basically groups of people who come together, usually independent workers who come together from a collective and with some sort of structure and ecosystem for themselves. And so the beauty about collectives that we uncovered was that basically collectives have very similar setups as you have in a full-time environment or in a part-time environment where you do have some sort of regular group that you're engaging with, that you're working with. So the sense of community is there. There's also a little bit more of the sense of safety. So it's not just completely up to you to find new clients, to figure everything out. There is like a little less pressure around that where you feel like you're collectively solving things and you're collectively responsible for it. And this also gives you the ability to rest more and take a step back. So with collectives, what really inspired me about them was that you can lean in and out depending on what you need in that moment right now or what the season of your life needs right now. And so, yeah, you have this ability to choose what you need during a certain time of your life. The other thing that's really interesting about collectives, it leaves you a little bit more space for other parts of your life. So one thing that the collectives that I interviewed highlighted was that they're actually finding that people's time and identities are usually not just bound to this one collective or work generally. So people usually have more things in their lives or more collectives or different setups of work that they're involved in. And so they actually bring in a lot of inspiration and bring in things that you would usually in the traditional work environment probably not get so much because there's this additional space for exploration and learning and play and experimenting with different things. And so that was something that was also really highlighted in the collective structure. What kind of businesses, I mean, I assume they're businesses, what kind of work were these collectives generally doing? Was it different kinds of enterprises than you might find in other structures? Yeah. So one of them was a network that was connecting talent in the sustainability field with clients. And so they were pulling in different people and had this group of people who were not necessarily all working together, but they were more the connectors. And then the other one was almost like an agency, I would say, where there was an inner circle of two or three founders. And then there was a wider pillow of collaborators that would get plugged in depending on the project. It's very interesting. I'm currently in a something called the Mira Fellowship, which is a fellowship for people with big ideas that might change the world. And they select five people a year to be in this and give them support and a little bit of funding. But I think they're in the collective building business. They're a tiny little team, but they don't just move people through for a year. I've seen a lot of these, actually. I can think of another one. But they move people through the program for a year. But then on the other side of it, there's a huge collective of alumni who are supporting each other. And so there's a way in which the collective can be the product that you're actually in the business of building. Yeah, totally. Like Neol, for instance, is an example of that too. I'm in their 
collective as well. The collective is the product and the product sells to clients services that the people within the collective offer. What's the name of that collective? Neol. N-E-O-L. And I feel like there's a lot of these collectives and new forms of collaboration and work emerging right now. Because on both sides, from a company side, as well as from a talent side, I believe that's where the future of work will be heading as well. Because from a company side, what I also heard, or what we even suggested, because the third section is about what organizations can actually learn from these things that we heard. And so from freelancers and collectives, especially, and from these different rhythms of work, what we learned is that ideally companies can really use that flexibility as well in a way that it allows them to scale up and down as well, especially in times that are a little bit more unstable. It might be interesting for companies to more think about things like, for instance, you have a core team that has very specific skills, but then you can actually up your team and widen your team with a more flexible workforce that allows them to scale up and down and also allows people who might not need this super core security part and actually look for something that's a little bit more flexible. They can then have a way to lean in and out as well and join the work and the company in times when it's interesting to them and when there's maybe a project that really lights them up. So I think It touches on a lot of different ways to actually allow for work in a way that really allows people to lean into the things that lights them up. And it also gives them the flexibility and autonomy and ways to lean in and out depending on what else is going on in their lives. When I was at the World Experience Organization Conference in London last year, I interviewed a lot of people who had essentially left big creative agencies because the kind of creative work they were getting was just not high enough quality. And they entered into networks like the one you're talking about, into one of these collectives, because it gave them more freedom in terms of what kind of work they could choose. And they would be in the hunt for that kind of work as a part of this collective, but they had the capacity through the collective to both choose what they wanted and then bring in the resources they needed to do that work. I asked them about it and I said, well, what's bad about that? And they said, well, we always sort of feel like we might run out of clients. The security was not as good. Yeah, yeah. You have a whole chapter on mushrooms. It's mycelium, right? Yeah. Which I think connects to this idea of collectives. What did you learn from how mushrooms have solved particular problems? I just find it so fascinating how coming back to like also what made me think about work in the way of, as you call it, eco-mimicry, was that the term you used? Ecomimesis. Ecomimesis. We just made up that word. It's not like a new (laughs) word. I looked at it from the angle of biomimicry, where you basically look at what nature does and adapt it to something else. But yeah, it's just fascinating that nature actually is the most regenerative system. So nature basically has things figured out. And we just as humans, and obviously we're part of nature, but that knowledge got lost. And so looking at these different levels and different forms of nature as well, it was really interesting that mycelium specifically, and also in the same chapter, there's also a mention of trees and forests, which are all these ecosystems and bigger structures where it's not just about the individual, it's actually something that's very interlinked and cross-connected. And the system is really allowing 
is supporting others. So the weaker parts of the system are supported by the stronger and maybe older and more senior sort of parts of the system. And also the system really shares a lot of resources. So there's some parts of the system that might sometimes lack in light or in water and other parts of the system might support that. And we can really adapt that to how we as humans interact as well. And I think that's where communities and networks are so powerful because we have these resources that we can share. We have these different skills that we can share. And we can, with that, really provide each other a support system that allows us to have the sense of belonging, sense of connection, and also the sense of safety and security that is really needed in order for us to actually take some rest and regenerate. One of the things that that makes me think about is how a standard corporation does not take a long-term view of the value that people provide in the sense that if you go a year without being productive because of something, you're going to be out. I've been doing a thought experiment with Mon Chao Lo, who is my nephew. And he was saying, how would companies behave if they could never fire anybody? So all of a sudden, you'd have a much longer-term investment in the success of the person in the company, and people wouldn't be disposable. How would that work? And we talked about all the ramifications of that. But there's an idea in the mycelium that there's a support for trees or parts of the network that are having a bad year, and that the next year, it may be the other way around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's take a look at a couple of the other rhythms. How about the sabbatical rhythm? What I found most interesting about the sabbatical rhythm and what very much supports my perspective to work and life and very much supports the reason why I started my platform out of office network was that those people who took sabbaticals that I interviewed, they basically said that sabbaticals just opened up their world. And so they suddenly had this very broad range of experiences and had time to actually dive into things that they haven't been able to explore before, like coming back at kind of like the work tunnel. It just offered them the opportunity to really look at things in a different light. And then actually when they came back to work, they felt on one hand much more inspired and came back with so many new ideas that they weren't really been able to think of before. But also even when it came to, for instance, like rhythms of work or rituals within the workplace, they actually saw things in a fresh light so they could also evaluate if things are actually needed or not and if they're helping the way people work together and the productivity or the output of things that are being delivered. And so it was a good way to just step back and take a longer break than a week or so and actually have this fresh perspective to really evaluate and look at things from a zoomed out lens and being able to look at what does actually serve us in the way we work right now and what's maybe something that we just kept doing because we're always here and we never really thought about stopping it for a moment. Were they mostly academics who were taking the sabbaticals that you studied or were they in other roles? No, they were actually in either agencies or companies. So all in like corporate environments and they had paid sabbatical offerings. So after a couple of years, having worked in the company, the company allowed them to step out for, it was two to three months. Sabbaticals in universities are very deliberately designed around cross-pollinization, which is, so you're going to take six months. Generally, that six months is at another university, six months or a year. So it's six months, full pay, one year, half pay, 
at the University of California. Being immersed into a population of other people who are thinking other things, a whole new set of minds, is an incredibly powerful kind of enriching of intellectual life. Yeah. It's also very much what artist residencies are about. I've been over the last year very obsessed with artist residencies and the concept of it and actually went to one. I wasn't part of the residency, but I visited the location. It's called Villa Lena in Tuscany, in the beautiful hills of Tuscany. And it's basically on one hand a hotel and on the other hand also an artist residency. So they have an art foundation and every year have, I think, like three cohorts of artists coming in. And what they told me as well is that they, through getting, I think it's seven or eight different artists that come in for a residency. And the most inspiring and beautiful thing for them is just they have these uh, rituals for everyone to come together over dinner. And they have rituals where they get invited to listen more deeply to nature. So it's really about the connection with the other artists and also the immersion into nature that really helps them come up with new ideas and form these different ways of looking at things and exploring different mediums. And so I think there's something just so beautiful by cross-pollinating and also giving this, I think one key thing about it is you have this safe container for exploration and play. And that's where, for instance, the stipends are or grants are so important for that as well. And I guess with the Mira Fellowship is in some way similar to that as well, right? Where you have this structure and the container and safety to explore and play. And you also have other people in the community that helps you think in new ways and allows you to go outside of what you usually would do. Yeah, there's something very special there about the diversity of artists. I was a resident. I don't usually tell this many stories about myself on a show, but <laughs> I have a lot to think about in this one. <laughs> I was a residential artist at the Carl Jarossi Foundation, which is in California. And what was very good about that residency is that it brought together very different artists. So there were sculptors, there was a dance studio, so there were dancers, there were composers, there were poets, there were fiction writers. And it was incredibly rich to have all artists, but very diverse types of art with very different perspectives. Very powerful. Yeah, and I think that's what I'm trying to do in the workplace. And I think that's what's so fascinating to me about, for instance, these community programs or forums that actually allow people within a company structure, or I would love to hear if there's other companies or structures you've observed where within a company, you can create a similar setup as well. Like sabbaticals are one thing, right? Where you open up the doors for your employees to go outside and explore something else outside and completely break your inner circle and what you have to offer within a company. But then there's also things that you can do within your company where you can actually create a similar setup for this container to explore and to try different things and to learn things that you're curious about and get to talk to people that you might normally not have the opportunity to talk with. I did run across one company where they, it appears that they are moving their headquarters with everybody who works there from city to city throughout the year. <laughs> so they're completely mobile. They're staying as a group, but they're moving around the world. I mean, I've seen interesting stuff around job swapping where it's not job swapping. It can even be just location swapping. You're in London. I'm in the Bay Area. We swap houses, things like that. How about part-time? 
I mean, there's two others here, which are a little bit less divergent, it seems to me. There's part-time and there's seasonal. Seasonal is so nicely tied to seasons. In other words, some of these are not necessarily tied to nature in a very direct way. Seasonal really is. And so what did you see in terms of those patterns? Yeah, with seasonal, I think the most interesting and beautiful thing was to see that seasonal setups basically have the seasons of life and the seasons of work systemically set up. There's a couple of months per year where you have work. And then there's simply a couple of months per year where you don't work and where basically offices or schools or those infrastructures where seasonal workers work, could also be restaurants, for instance, are closed. My husband's parents, for instance, also run a beach restaurant in Italy. They have a seasonal work rhythm where it's five-ish months of the year they work in the restaurant and then the rest of the year, they don't. And so I think that's the interesting thing with seasonal things. There's a system for it, and that system includes work time and not work time. So you don't intentionally need to add it in. It's already like built for it. I've seen people do that. Of course, teachers have seasonal work. I've seen lifeguards with seasonal work, where it's sort of the reverse, which is that the lifeguarding season is really quite short, whereas the teaching season is much longer. And so I saw a couple of alternatives to that, which is that the lifeguarding season, one lifeguard I knew was a lifeguard in the summer in the United States and a lifeguard in the summer in Australia, and then had these gaps in between, but was able to be mobile that way. Another one just moved to a beach in Mexico for the whole winter and would come back up and just lived a very inexpensive life. I guess that's a question I have about a lot of these patterns. Do you see people needing to live a very low-cost life to make these situations comfortable? Financials definitely was something that came up in a couple of the rhythms or the models as a difficult part. With part-time, for instance, part-time work means part-time pay. Seasonal workers, I guess, again, there's the system that's designed for it in many forms. Like, for instance, for teachers, there's basic salary that's spread out across the whole year. So I think it's definitely something that came up in a lot of different forms. And I think one thing that one of the people that I interviewed mentioned is that when you pick a model like that, that it's more important to actually know what's a non-negotiable and what's important for you. So you start from the place of what is it that I need? And then work back from there and you see, okay, what do I need to build? How much do I need to work? What are the things that I need, need to do in order to get to that? Rather than I think what it often is in our current sort of work society where the role basically defines or a job ad that you see defines how much you want to have because you see like, oh, there's this job that pays X amount of money. And so suddenly your awareness set gets like, oof, okay, there's this possibility of earning so much. And so you always tend to like want more versus actually thinking about what is it that I really need and what is it that I want to have in order to then maybe earn a little less, but live a lifestyle that allows me to do other things. And also some people with the different models also did side projects or side businesses or start businesses on the side that would again, on the long run, 
hopefully also make some income for them or would already make some income for them. So it was also a lot about diversifying the portfolio rather than having a bit of work and not doing anything that's income related for the rest of the time. Yeah, that's actually one of the things that is not necessarily a pattern that you've identified, which is the big mess, which is <laughs> yeah. just people who do stuff. They're just made of hustle, but they don't have a particular domain that they hustle in. I've always been very impressed by people who live by their wits in that way. They're just all hustle. So how do you bring these ideas? And a lot of what you've written about is about the importance of play and the importance of experimentation and the importance of downtime and the importance of rest. And you bring those into companies. So for instance, you've worked with a lot of the very top design firms and run facilitated sessions and offsites for them. How do you incorporate these ideas? There's two ways that I look at it. On one hand, it's about the way people work together. So there's a lot about what are the rituals? What are the practices of how we work together? So creating a way of working that's centered around the well-being of a person that is centered around the humanity and the connection between people so that there's rituals and practices that actually allow people to check in with each other, get to know more of the human side. So get to know them also in components outside of their work. So make space for really connection building and that part of the human or even make things more effective where it's like, what are the meetings that we actually really need? And what are the ones that are maybe not necessary? Then also looking at things like what are different ways of working together? For instance, one company that I worked with, Dropbox, I worked with them during the time when COVID really hit. And I was in the team that designed the virtual first work experience. So it was all around how can we actually create a way of working that is enlightening for people? and do that in a virtual and by that I mean remote first environment. So we really looked at what are the different practices and rituals that people need in order to create a way of working that feels good for them and designed a virtual first toolkit that's also available and publicly and free accessible online, the virtual first toolkit that basically has 19 of these practices to think about work in a more sustainable and long-term way that actually helps people do good work and help them create an environment where they can thrive and feels like they are actually able to flourish as well. Do the companies you've consulted with, do they have a hunger for more human connection that they recognize? Is there a recognition of a kind of starvation of certain organic structures? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, the companies that I work with, they usually pull me in because they have that recognition. I'm still not 100% sure how much it is possible and how much it is my work to convince companies that human connections are important because I think it is a lot about leadership who has an awareness for that and who appreciates connection, community, and these topics that are making a work experience more interesting and thriving for people. I think it's really hard to do if leadership is just like not having an awareness for that at all, because obviously there's also budgets that need to make available for that. And then the other thing that is outside of the work rituals and which is even more, I think, like looking at the connections and 
also touching on the things that we spoke about before, like the cross-pollination are more like community programs. So that's the other big pillar that I work on. And that is mostly when a company has some awareness, it's often a lack of inspiration within people, people feeling very depleted, feeling burned out and feeling like they don't really have this energy within them anymore. And that's, for instance, where then I have designed community programs across Dropbox and across the Q Collective, which is really a way for people to come together, get to know different people from different departments and different teams that they might usually not really get to interact with. And also give them the opportunity to actually create something and work on something that's maybe like a little bit outside of their scope of work on like an everyday basis, but that really allows them to like learn and develop and look at new skills and then also gives them a reason to get energized for their actual day jobs again. Can you say what the Q Collective is? Because I think it's an interesting, it's a collective, it's just another example of a collective, but what is the Q Collective? It's a collective slash holding company that owns a lot of the leading design firms and creative firms like IDEO and SY Partners and Kepler and Gale. They basically are the umbrella across all these different companies, but it's a very special organization in the sense that they actually, they're not just like a holding company. They're also really thinking about how the collective intelligence across all those different companies can be nurtured. So they actually develop an operation system that basically brings together all the different companies and gives them a way to connect with each other, to learn about each other, to see what other companies are doing, what clients they're working on. So there's a much more holistic and intentional way to look at the collective and create connections across the collective in there. That sounds fun. Yes, <laughs> it is. I mean, it sounds fun just because obviously it's a bunch of top designers working on awesome things and in different fields too of design. So for instance, SY Partners is in a very different field than IDEO. Yeah. And Gail, for instance, is in urban design and urban planning. So yeah, lots of different areas that get touched on through that. When you work with them, are you generally working for the holding company? In that case, yeah, I was working for the holding company. But then with Dropbox, for instance, or I was also working with Working Not Working, a creative collective that is more just for that company that has a certain community or an audience that needs to be brought together in some form. But what you're seeing is that there are companies who are willing to experiment in organic structures and connection and lifestyles that are regenerative. Yeah, especially companies that are, I think, also have experienced that there is just a limit to what a degenerative way of working can bring and that there's an increasing workforce of people who want to go independent, who want to have more diversified ways of working. And so I think, I mean, we're still, I think, very at the beginning of this new workforce, but the number of remote workers and independent workers is increasing massively. And I think there's more and more awareness that there will need to be a different setup for people to work in a different form. There's even agencies, for instance, like RGA, they launched this program or setup that's RGA Associates, where if you've been part of the agency and part of their network, you can join that collective. I don't know how to exactly name it, the term for it, but 
it's basically similar to a collective, I would say, or an alumni network in some form where you're being pulled in and then you still have some of the benefits that you get by working for the actual RGA company. But then you do have still the flexibility and the opportunity to just lean in and out depending on what you need. And so I think there's more and more awareness for different forms of working. I mean, that's what I'm really interested in exploring now in the future is like, what are the new sort of social infrastructures and tools that are needed for this new way of working? Because I do think there's going to be a complete shift because there's been the old way of working also pre-pandemic where everyone came to an office and just had their regularity. That way of working, it's shifting and people have been, they woke up to some extent and people don't want that traditional way of working anymore in many forms. And so I think there's now the slow shift, but obviously it's taking time because it's been so many decades that we've been working in this more traditional nine to five form. And now there's this new generation and new era of work, but that area still doesn't really have the tools and the infrastructures fully figured out. So I think a lot of companies also like to stay in their comfort zone and that's totally fair. Like I don't think every company needs to innovate, but I do think there's this parallel universe starting to evolve for some people or some companies are just going to keep doing the nine to five. And then there's almost this parallel matrix where things are developing and where we'll need new tools, we'll need new infrastructures. And those are the ones that I'm specifically interested in. Yeah. Something besides the building is going to have to hold us together is one way to think about it, which is that it used to be that you could bring everybody into one building and stuff them together and there would be sort of a fusion reaction where people would interact. But without the building, something else is going to have to hold us together. And honestly, it's going to be a much more human thing than a bunch of stacked bricks that holds us together. Yeah. And as you're bringing up buildings, I've been recently doing a lot of research around third spaces and how with workism and the sort of disappearing of religion, where churches were originally our form of gathering and coming together and sense of belonging and connection building, right? And then with the Industrial Revolution, offices actually took over that role. And so suddenly we would spend the majority of our time in offices and would gather there and would make our connections there. But then that also led to the fact that we have basically neglected the outside of our lives. And so that started to shift with the pandemic where offices started to close and people were starting to realize, okay, that's also not really a healthy relationship with work that we're having. And I think now it's this time where we're in a global loneliness epidemic. So people are really often working from home, feeling isolated because of that, because I think that's also not the ideal setup of work, just to be isolated alone in your home office. And there's loneliness connected to that and also lack of inspiration connected to that. And so I think now is really the time where we're starting to shift into like, okay, what are these new ways of coming together? I think there's some component that is online. There will definitely need to be a new and better form of online gathering because we're also such a distributed workforce. And then there's, on the other hand, the physical interactions. And so with Out of Office, for instance, I just launched this um, Out of Office uniform, which is basically a merch campaign or like some wear, merch wear that invites people to talk to each other. And so it's going to have some slogans where you are invited to chat to each other. And then when you talk to someone else, Out of Office sponsors you a free coffee. So it's a way to give people permission 
purpose and structure, as my collaborator Shuya Gang says, to create that engagement with each other and invite people to go outside and give them reason to go outside and then also create this almost like an icebreaker. How does that work? I didn't understand how it works. So you buy a uniform and then you go to a coffee shop and you choose a coffee shop that you either like or there's also an overview of different places that you can look into. So a directory of places and coffee shops that are also remote work friendly. And then when you meet some or when you see someone either who also has the out of office uniform, you unlock like a free coffee if you talk to each other. So people are incentivized to talk to each other. And then when you get that coffee out of office, like pays for that coffee. Or the other option is that someone might actually talk to you because you have this uniform and they're curious about it, or you have a laptop sticker and it breaks the ice between two people. The uniform is like a social tool and it's a social tool to actually create in-person connection. That sounds lovely. That sounds absolutely (laughs) lovely. I just spoke with a company, it's called Co-Remoting. And its idea is that people should be able to get together in each other's houses to work. They don't have to work for the same company, but they just don't want to work alone. Yeah. Really, I'd never heard of that before, the idea of co-remoting. But this seems a little less invasive (laughs) into your space. (laughs) Yeah. You have to be a lot more gregarious to want people to come over to your house. But the idea that you could just find people in a safe place, that's great. Yeah. And we've also been starting to do some co-working meetups, which is also, it's just that people want to get outside of their homes and want to find a way to come together. And I think, as I said, I think it needs to be the combination of it. I think on one hand, we need to have that opportunity in in person to come together, but then there also needs to be some form of, especially for companies, I think like some form of infrastructure where people across the company, even if they're not in the same place where they are distributed teams, because they won't always be able to come together but like come together as a company. And I think that's where the programs and the community work within a company is really important. And then it is also about empowering employees, not even necessarily to actually meet up with their people in their cities, because people might also work and live in different cities, but also just to go outside and actually feel like they're part of the world rather than just isolated in their home offices. How do you foster play? It's such an important part of what you write about. but Fostering play that doesn't feel artificial, how do you manage that? Or have you managed that? Well, I think for me, play is necessarily not in the traditional way of playing. It's not necessarily playing a game or something. There are definitely ways or there are games in the workplace as well, which work well. Like I've designed a tarot card set, for instance, um, which is basically a form to start conversations in a playful way. So there's, I think, on one hand, the playful element of play. So giving things a light and playful spirit. One of my favorite yoga teachers, Quasi, I mentioned him in a book as well. He said like, try a little easier. And so I think there's just this sense of lightness and playfulness. And I think sometimes with work, we're taking it so seriously. And it's just sometimes about bringing in a spirit of playfulness and joy. So that's one way to do it and just having tools that allow you to bring in this lightness and ease into play. And then the other form that I think is a way to bring play into the workspace is more like the exploration. So it's just breaking out of what you usually do and actually allowing you to do different things. And that could be either 
taking a break in the middle of the day when you feel like you're stuck and going for a walk or going to a museum and adding some novelty in your life. Or one of the articles that in the book actually looks at different rituals around playfulness and adding a spirit of playfulness and experimentation. One thing could also be, which my friend Matt Sim mentioned, is the there's a ritual that they did at an agency that he used to work at where they basically had like a play puzzle table. And so when the team is, for instance, stuck, everyone would get off and just go to the puzzle table and play for a little bit. And that, again, just opens up your awareness and loosens up and brings in this lightness. But it could also be trying something new. And there's, for instance, with Dropbox, there is a website where people get invited to write articles around different topics that they're interested in. So it's also just like thinking in a more diverse way and thinking in a different form and thinking about something that's not necessarily work-related, but actually giving employees the opportunity to think and explore different topics. There's another example that I mentioned, one agency called Suze Jones. They have a platform where it's like a publication, basically, where the employees get to choose different themes. And then they create these beautiful essays and beautiful publications around a theme that they're interested in. And so they have this almost like curiosity play budget that they can use for interviewing different experts about different topics. And so I think in the company, it's really about creating these programs or structures or projects that allow people to just do things that they're interested in and that they want to dive deeper into. And yeah, that can be very small, like a literally a curiosity budget where you can do a table making workshop or whatever it is, or it can also be a program or a platform that's actually designed by the company and there's something regular that people can get involved in. I like calling it a curiosity budget because if it's a fun budget, which some people have, it's sort of like, okay, now it's time for fun. Things don't just work that way. Yeah. It's the same as like the ping pong tables, right? Like the ping pong tables and the free taco Tuesday or whatever. It's not actually how you build experimentation, play a culture that fosters this sense of togetherness and that fosters this sense of experimentation and novelty, ping pong tables are not going to create that. So that's a very different category. Fun is something slightly different. I wonder if there'd be value to having a boredom budget, which is <laughs> yeah. we're going to set aside some time where you do nothing. <laughs> like literally. I, yes. I mean, it's sort of like a silent retreat, but yeah. the power of Forced idleness in terms of clearing out your mind's chatter? Yeah, some companies to some extent, but it's again, I think a different framing. And I think that's the interesting thing as well. Like the vocabulary around that is so interesting. Where I think, for instance, there's like wellness days or summer Fridays, and they have like a very different energy compared to, for instance, a boredom budget. It implies a very different thing. And gives me a very different form of permission as an employee. So I think the wording and the communication is really relevant around this. Yeah. And boredom budget may not be the right thing, but <laughs> a silence budget, for instance, or a, an isolation budget. or Solitude. Solitude budget, right. It's the opposite <laughs> of community. It's spend some time with yourself kind of budget. In a good way. In a good way. Yeah. It's not solitary confinement budget. It's <laughs> solitude, a solitude budget. Yeah. 
this is the challenge with a lot of these things, which is that the value that they create is very indirect. It's truest of the solitude budget. But the play budget is another example where it doesn't look like work. The curiosity budget looks a little bit more like work, but it's beautifully exploratory. I love that idea. Well, and I think it can be designed and can be put together in a way that the outcome is very clear. Like for instance, with the work that I did at Dropbox, there was actually a very clear connection to what it does. It was also feeding the employer brand, for instance. So it actually was a way to attract talent as well by showcasing what we did and what people within the company are thinking about and what people within the company are exploring about. And it on one hand like shows what the company actually works on because it's a very different thing if you see what someone is working on and hear that through their lens and through their perspective. And that is, for instance, like published in a publication versus just the brand talking about it in that way. And also it shows that, for instance, with Dropbox, we were all about building culture and helping teams build their design culture in a better way. And so we published these free accessible tools for design teams to work on their culture and improve their culture as well and their ways of working. And so that was also a reason for someone to be actually even more interested in working at the company. So it's definitely also an employer branding and talent instrument. I once sent a Christmas card to some friends and it said joy in the front. And I took the letter R from a magazine and I put it over the J so that it said Roy. And then the inside it said, because joy's a little much, don't you think? And that was my (laughs) Christmas card. And so there's something about holding work to a standard of joy that I'm afraid that if that were my standard for successful work, that I would never be happy because joy is scarce, it seems to me. But maybe you have a different idea of what joy is. I think to me, joy is really about when you have this feeling of just you're in awe of what's possible and when you feel this warm-heartedness around you and you just genuinely enjoy spending time together with your colleagues, you genuinely enjoy the work that you do. And I think that is my standard and I'm trying to keep that standard up. And I think I'm trying to have more people experience that. And on one hand, at work itself, but then I think also rekindling that joy and experience of joyfulness outside of work and being more alive and being more active and being more sort of aware of the world around you. I think that's for me how I would describe joy. It's funny because enjoy, enjoying work doesn't seem like too much to me, but joy, maybe it's just a stronger word in my mind. But the way you talk about it, that makes a lot of sense to me. Joy is a lot about noticing it as well, I think. I mean, I think when you put joy big on a Christmas card, yeah, that feels like a lot. But then maybe it's just about noticing small things. There's, for instance, an exercise that I created in one of the tools that I built where you basically create a little joy. And I think it might have been an adjustment from where I picked it up from Brené Brown eventually, where it's like a little joy diary where you just write down like what are small things that bring you joy in your everyday. And then you have this library of joy moments and you can come back to them more easily. So I think it's also creating a sense of awareness. And I think we often have this very big, shiny expectation of something. But then especially I think when it comes to 
the way we work and the way we just are in life. It's very much about creating small moments and creating small, tiny steps to actually shaping our everyday experience. And I think we just need to be more intentional with how we design things. So I think for me, it's not about putting this big sticker of joy into something. It's more about designing for delight and designing for joyful moments and then collecting all of these joyful moments and then make it feel like it's actually a good feeling around it and you feel connected and you feel inspired and you feel positive about work and yourself. I've done a lot of study of what people want from work. And there's a pattern to certain narrative structures that happen in work. And one of the patterns is that there's a knot that's tied up. And the pattern of work is to untie the knot. And so there's a denouement of the knot. And that moment of discomfort looking at the knot, and then the moment of release and satisfaction when you untie the knot, is something that if you pay attention to it, it is a moment of joy. It's very small. And so when you're doing a puzzle, for instance, on a table, and you find the piece that matches, there was this thing that was not right in the world, which is those two pieces, you couldn't find that piece. And then you found the piece, and it fits just right. And the truth is that our days are full of those things, if we care to notice them. And off the top of my head, I can't remember the whole cycle. But it starts with a knot, and then there's this suspense where you aren't sure if you're going to be able to untie the knot. And then there's the untying of the knot, and then there's the detect, which is you can actually tell that you were successful. So you can tell that you did that. And that that's a very common cycle in a narrative cycle in work. Whether you're making something, whether you're solving a puzzle, whether you're tidying something up. And I've noticed some of my artist friends, for instance, the word work means to them misery, period. If I'm doing labor, and they labor night and day on their art, but if they don't hate it, it's not work because their very definition of the word work is something somebody else makes you do that you hate. And I don't hold that. I think that there's a lot of joy in the individual moments of work if you care to pay attention. Yeah, yeah. I think it's also probably related to the topic of like workism and the way the Industrial Revolution coined the term work as well, right? Because for many people, work has this bad reputation because they might have had traumatic experiences with work and they might have experienced work in this not joyful way at all. But I fully agree. I think for me, it's also not a negative term. I think it can be designed in a way that where work doesn't feel like work really, it's actually more something that we do enjoy. And I think the definition of work is different for many people. And I think you could say that an artist who works on their art pieces, that's work all day, right? It's work. It's hard work. So I ask everybody this question toward the end of the interview, which is, what do you hire your job to do for you? I think I would hire the type of work that I do to the type of work that I do. So basically... I think it's always hard to do the work that you do for yourself or on yourself and for your projects. And so I think I would actually love to have myself and my work self 
put it into my system and even my project or my, my other work project, if we want to call it like that, out of office, if I could design the way that I design work for clients, for my own project, that's what I would hire it for. How is London as a platform for building the kind of work that you want? Hmm. Um, for me, it's almost this like base that I can put different roots from. I feel like to me, it felt or it feels very creative. There's definitely a different rhythm of work compared to New York. And so I think to me, I would like to see it as a way that I can take inspiration from all the creative energy that it has, from all the art, from all the cultural things that are happening here, but in a more sustainable and in a more European sort of pace, and then apply that to the work that I do. So it's my form of like my regenerative loop, I think, because I've also noticed that in New York, it's really hard to keep that right balance on and have the regeneration moments. I always needed to also like remove myself from it again and again, because otherwise it would get too much sucked into it as well. And I think with London, it's easier to have that balance also because there's just all my European getaways from Barcelona to Italy to Austria. They're all much closer as well. And so I want to take the inspiration, but also the regeneration that I can have through it into my work and bring that more and more into it. What is your favorite tool of your trade? Hmm, I guess just like from a very practical sense, I think my laptop, because I work a lot remotely and I travel a lot. And it's actually like this really beautiful tool that allowed me to maintain a lifestyle that is, I would say, very unique. I can be in places like anywhere in the world and live a very creative lifestyle. And I have photos of my laptop in like all different types of places from like the pool in Mexico to a coffee shop in London to somewhere in Cape Town. And it's just this tool that I can carry with me everywhere I go. And my collaborators and clients can confirm that I do calls in like the funniest occasions. When I worked with Dropbox, I had like chicken in the background, kind of somewhere on a on a call in between. So it's definitely this tool, I would say, that allows me to live this very creative way. Because if I didn't have my laptop, I would have to sit somewhere and most likely be stuck in some cubicle. So I think for me, it's really a tool that gives me freedom and allows me to set my way up like that. What does your job cost you? Well, I think the challenge with thinking a lot about work and being very passionate about this new philosophy around work, I think to some extent it also is a form of figuring it out for myself and yeah, in some form, figuring out my own relationship with work. And so I think it's definitely very hard to still switch off because it's the moment where I am outside of the office, where I am on a hike or doing something in, in nature where actually a lot of my best ideas happen. And so that was the initial idea of why I wanted to start out of office because I realized how important it is to get outside and to step away from the desk and from 
the office and actually have the best ideas that I come up with. But then now that for me is almost like this, oh, I have this idea around out of office on my hike where I actually want to not think about work. And so it's kind of this spiral of when do I ever not think about it if my downtime is my work to some extent, like if my work is around downtime. That's a really interesting problem. (laughs) It's an interesting problem to have. Because that idea you had is a good thing. It's just at a time when you were trying to not be working. And part of the reason you're trying not to be working is so that those sorts of good things can happen. Yeah, totally. And then they happen while you're supposed to be not working. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 And what I do now, for instance, is I leave myself voice notes. So just a couple of weeks ago, I was in La Gomera on the Canary Islands and I was on this beautiful hike and I had this moment where I was like, wow, that's such a good idea and such a clarity moment. And so I just pulled out my phone and left myself a voice note. And then I could be like, okay, I've got it recorded. So now I can like let it go again. So I'm I'm starting to learn how to navigate it. But yeah, it's definitely a challenge sometimes. Where can people learn about you and about your work? I have a newsletter on Substack that's called Out of Office Network, where people can read on a monthly basis. They can read everything that's on my brain and dive more into reimagining the nature of work. And People can connect with me on LinkedIn and also drop me a message on LinkedIn. Great. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Work for Humans. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts and share the show with one person you think would get value from it. Believe it or not, this really helps us grow the show and reach more people who want to build the kind of work that people really want. As always, thank you to my producer, Jason Ames at Ninth Path Audio for his insights into content and his high standard for quality. Final note, the opinions shared here are my own and not the views of Google or Cisco Systems. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.